Welcome back to the Jacob Kelly interview series. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. Today is not an interview. Today is a takeaways episode. And a takeaways episode where I sit down and I talk to you one-on-one about my most recent interview. I'll obviously give you some of my takeaways from the conversation, maybe some anecdotes of how I approached the interview, maybe a little bit of behind-the-scenes stories or something like that. Um, and I used to do these episodes for my old podcast, My Social Life, um, and they were more so a way for me to get a higher volume of content. I was trying to do an inter- I did an interview every single week, but I wanted to do two uploads, and I know I didn't have the bandwidth to do two interviews, so I came up with this takeaways episode where I would talk to you about the podcast. And while that's cool, I think now on this new show, it's not necessarily a volume play. It's more so a way for me just to talk to you one-on-one, right? Like with the interviews is I'm talking to the guest, and here I can talk to you and share some of my insights and stuff like that from the podcast. And so today we're talking about my interview with Mike Hill. And these are also, for the record, these are just one take. I'm not going to go back and cut and edit and do all that stuff to this. I'll probably tweak the audio in like a couple seconds and call it a day and upload it. Um, I don't want this to become a big thing to do. I think it's just fun. I enjoyed the takeaways for them being such a low lift, casual thing for you and I just kind of hang out um, and talk about the most recent episode. And so I have a lot of takeaways from Mike. And you know, to be to be completely transparent, so today I'm recording this on June 1st. I interviewed Mike in like February. <laughs> and so the process for all these interviews now too is completely different, right? Because I think right now the the focus in terms of content for me is YouTube and these interviews end up becoming YouTube videos, but I'll upload the uncut raw interviews to the podcast. And so the the editing time and the turnaround time on an interview is is a lot. Um, and so these episodes aren't going to come out every single month or they're probably maybe every single month or so. I'm sitting on two ep- episodes right now that I've got to edit and I've got another one coming up. Uh, but it's also intermingled with the rest of my YouTube content and my writing and stuff like that. So um, the time between these uh, episodes is going to be a while. And ideally, I'll record these takeaways right after. But I wasn't actually sure if I was going to do takeaways for this new show. And I was listening back to the podcast with Mike that I did. And I was like taking all these like notes and like writing all these good points down. And I was like, damn, you know, what? I should just do these takeaways. It's just fun. You know, I'll jump on here 20, 30 minutes. I'll rant about all the things. Um and so that's kind of why I decided to do it. And it's just fun. It's just easy. Like I said, it's low lift and we just hang out. And I was so excited to get Mike, especially as the first guest for this new show. Because um, I remember, so I was studying James Cameron for a couple of months, which I mentioned in the interview. Oh, but the point I was making, sorry, before I forget, and it's going to take me a little while to get kind of get back in the groove of doing a takeaways episode. It's been almost a year now, but um, is it's been a little while. So some of these points, I'm hoping they're, like it won't be, it's not quite as fresh, but I did just listen to the podcast. So it's fresh from that perspective, perspective, but not necessarily fresh from having just done the interview recently perspective. Um, but either way, I was so excited to get Mike on the podcast. So I was studying James Cameron and what that kind of looks like for me is I will, I will basically in for James Cameron specifically is I watched every single one of his films. I then watched as many interviews as I could of James Cameron. I read three books. I read tech noir, which is like, uh, a coffee table book of his art with his commentary. I read Titanic and the making of James Cameron, which is about behind the scenes of making Titanic. And then I read James Cameron interviews, which is a collection of, of written James Cameron interviews. And so I read those three, those three books. I watched all the interviews. I watched all the movies. And one of the things I ended up watching in that process was Mike's analysis of Terminator 2. And I was just blown away when I watched it. I was, I was just, I couldn't, I was like, my mind was blown just the way he like talked about the monomyth, which was really my first introduction to the monomyth and, and death and rebirth. And, um, I'm forgetting the words, not imagery. Um, it'll come to me, but either way, he talked about all these different things, metaphor, metaphors, 
think it was visual metaphors. Um, just all this stuff that like I was totally not something I'd ever even considered. And of course, like we talked about in the interview, like not all of it was a hundred percent in James's intention when making the film, but it was all still there. And I was just like, so mind blown. And I was like, this guy is amazing. Let me check out his website. And I was on his website and I was like, actually, I want to learn more about him. I was checking out his website and then I found his email and I was like, man, when I start the interview series, I should reach out and see if he'll do an interview. And to his credit, he said yes. And so this is the first guest I got on the podcast. Um, we've got two more recorded, a third one, another one scheduled to be recorded in a couple of weeks. But I was so excited to get Mike on the podcast. And I'm honestly stoked with how this interview turned out. Like we talk a little bit of Bitcoin of like the last 10 minutes or so, because I'm still trying to figure out exactly how to end these podcasts. Like on my social life, I had like the rapid fire questions. And here I just, I was like going with something kind of different where it's like, so I'm still trying to figure out how to end the show. Um, so we talked about Bitcoin a little bit for that last 10 minutes, but to me, like where the ending of the podcast truly marks is like, I basically take everything we're talking about with like the subconscious and how to tell a good story, the subconscious and messaging and how a message should be a part of your story and on the surface of your story and the subconscious. And like, those are two big threads throughout the podcast. I like weave them together at the very end. And I was like, so stoked. I'll be like, I didn't really know how the podcast was going to go, but like a clear A A and a B arc kind of presented themselves throughout. And I was able to bring both of that A side and B side story and kind of like connect them at the very end. And so I was really stoked with this. I mean, Mike's one of those people you can ask anything and he'll have a very interesting response. And I thoroughly enjoyed this podcast. I love the way the video turned out. If you haven't checked out the YouTube video version, it's completely different from the interview. Not completely different, but it's 20 minutes instead of an hour and 10 and basically what I did is I cut the interview down, obviously. I focus on one specific thread, which we kind of talked about in the beginning and more so at the end. So I kind of just cut out most of the middle. And then I reordered the questions, not to change the context in which I'm asking Mike the questions, but more so just to create a more compelling flow to the questions. So like the, each follow-up question makes more sense in that to try and create like a really clear narrative um, from the interview. And then if you want the full uncut, you can go to the podcast. And that's kind of what I want to do with all of these interviews. And so I have one coming up with Freddie Mercury's personal assistant and Fred Mandel, who's a legendary session and touring musician. Um, and so I want to do that with all of these episodes because I think it's just cool. It creates a more compelling product for YouTube. And it also, I think it just creates a really cool product and it reflected because I was emailing Mike after the fact I sent him everything when it came out. And he's like, wow, I really like how this was edited, um, which was a huge, a huge like relief for me because like I do stress a little bit moving the questions out of order even though I'm not painting the person in a different light like I'm very much ensuring that what they are saying and what they were answering is reflected and I still include the original question that I was asking in there so I try not to take anything out of context and he really liked it and so he saw the value in this this type of edit so I was really appreciative of Mike for that for the fact that he called that out so it made me feel really good and Mike also said he was happy to do another interview and so we're going to do that again at some point I told him to just give me a little while. I want to get a few more interviews in the books before I start going back to previous guests. Uh, it's not going to be like my social life where I wait like a year in between. I'll wait a few months, but nothing too, too crazy. But I would like to get Mike back on here because there's a lot of stuff we could talk about, a lot of stuff that I didn't even ask him about. And so I would be excited to do another chat with him, which we'll do at some point. Um, but I do have a lot of takeaways from my conversation with Mike. So I do want to get into the, to these We'll see how I'm just going to count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. I have like 13 takeaways, which could be a lot, as you can tell, as this introduction is over seven minutes long. Um, but I'm just really excited. And I was like reflecting on everything. I was like, I'm just having a lot of fun with the content right now, like with the interviews and the people I'm getting to interview and the essays I'm writing and the videos I'm making for you. Like I'm just having fun. And that's that's so cool because 
with my social life, it almost felt like by the end of it, it was like, it wasn't dragging on. It didn't feel, almost, almost felt like work and I was doing it almost for the sake of doing it. Now I'm doing it because I want to do it and I'm having fun. And don't mean take that to mean like I didn't love my social life. I really did. And I think it ended at the best possible point. I think had it gone on any longer than it did, there probably would have been a start to like drag my heels on and stuff. So I ended my social life in a great place. And now I'm out with my content. I'm having fun with everything. You know, I think that's the best place to be. And so I really enjoyed this podcast with Mike. And before <laughs> I'll say one more time and then we'll actually do it. I'll get, let me get into some of these takeaways. And the first one being is around constraints, right? And we, we talked about constraints briefly when writing about or talking about Terminator 2 and James Cameron. And Mike was saying how James and Bill, I believe, I'm blanking on his last name, um, but the co-writers, the writers of Terminator 2 were given two weeks to, to write the this, this screenplay. And within that two weeks, in Mike's, Mike's words, Mike's, the way Mike put it is they squeezed out a diamond. And because Terminator 2 is a fantastic film. And there's a level of constraints that's required as a creative, right? Like you think as a creator that ideally you want the blank slate. You want to have a, an empty canvas for you to do whatever you want. But that can almost lead to analysis paralysis. Because when you can do anything, you almost end up doing nothing. And you need a certain level of constraints to play against in order to be creative. And one element of creativity, of course, there's creativity in, in taking absolutely nothing and creating something. But there's also an element of creativity in having a constraint and finding a solution that incorporates it or that leverages that constraint. And so as a creator, don't necessarily let your constraints be a negative thing. Learn how to learn how to use them to your advantage, right? Like I, this isn't necessarily a show entirely for content creators. That was really what my social life was. But in the YouTube world, it's like a lot of people are upset about the fact that they don't have as many resources as a creator like a Mr. Beast or an Arak or something like that. But use that to your advantage. Figure out what you can do within those constraints that some creators like an Arak or Mr. Beast can't do. Because as a smaller creator, you're going to have advantages that bigger creators don't have. Obviously, they're going to have a lot of advantage over you, but you have to be creative in finding out what your advantages are. And so leverage your constraints and use them to your advantage. The next one too, this is more so back to the movie side, which again, if you... I probably should have said this earlier, but Mike is a difficult person to nail down, but he's, uh, I kind of settled on the title of the episode as a film theorist and story, uh, story lecturer, story consultant. Um, but he also is a level designer and a concept designer for films and games. He's worked on movies like Blade Runner 2049. He's worked on Game of Thrones, Love, Death, and Robots, video games like Call of Duty, Killzone, Horizon Zero Dawns. He's worked on some massive projects. So Mike knows what he's talking about. But one of them being is the sequel shouldn't be more of the same was another thing that I wrote down here. And this was something I, I learned when I was researching James Cameron. And I probably was, I think that was the entry point to this conversation in the podcast. But it was the fact that a sequel shouldn't just be a replication of the first movie. You need to find a way to usurp your audience's expectations and do something differently. Figure out what the audience loved about the original. Hold on to those core elements, but then in, inject new life into it. And the example with James Cameron, obviously he's an avatar, he's in Aliens, which is a sequel to Alien, and Terminator 2, he just kind of flips everything on its head where it's like Sarah Connor was the the waitress, the, I think, what did Mike describe her as, a soft, doughy waitress, and by the end of it, she becomes like a, she becomes a little bit more prepared for this, and the second movie, you, you very quickly find out she's in a mental asylum. And so it takes this nice waitress and totally flips it on its head, flips the and uh, spoiler alert for Terminator 2 <laughs> takes the original villain from the first one, makes them a good guy. So he really just flipped the film on its head. Um, 
that's what you do with a good sequel is you don't want to just continue giving people the same thing over and over and over and over again. That's not how you're going to build a successful long-term career. I have my essay, Another One Bites the Dust, why you don't remember 99% of YouTubers in 10 years, and it's about Queen's discography. And every single Queen album was slightly different from the one before. Obviously, there's like the, the tenets of a core of a Queen album where it's like Freddie's vocals, the Brian's guitar, Roger's high harmonies. And those are like the bricks they use to build the house, but they build the house differently every single time, right? Like you take the things people love, you hold on to them, and then you tear down everything else around that and build something new. And that's what you need to do with a good sequel. That's what you need to do as a content creator. You don't want to just put out the same video over and over and over again. You need to constantly be pushing the envelope to innovate. You don't want to just keep giving people the same thing because eventually people will get bored. Another core thing we talked about on the podcast was the subconscious that came up quite a bit. And it's something I've been thinking a lot about more lately, right? Like I just wrote this essay. I don't want to be the guy who just plugged all his essays, but it's like my essays is really where I think deeply about these things and where I form a lot of my opinions about art and creativity and media and stuff like that. Um, and so I, I don't, but I don't want to be that guy, but I'm going to be that guy anyways. Um, but I was thinking about so the subconscious, like how the subconscious impacts what we do and probably far more than we even know. And when it came to, uh, my interview with Mike, we're talking about James Cameron again. James Cameron's going to come up quite a bit throughout this, so just be prepared for that. Um, but the subconscious was how Mike talked about all the symbolism and stuff in in Terminator 2, and I asked him if a lot of these things were intentional or if they kind of happened by accident or subconscious. And Mike said a lot of it comes through the subconscious. And the essay I was writing was about posthumous art, which is so what happens to your art when you die. And the original the original point I was making with with the essay was one was kind of a piece around like legacy and stuff like that and why people create. And I was talking with someone today and we were talking about how like, I don't think a lot of younger creators are probably making for legacy. And I don't think a lot of creators are on the surface, but there's probably a subconscious element to making art that you do in order to build a legacy, to be remembered. And so I think the subconscious influences a lot of things that we do and influences a lot of the art that you make. And so part of this essay as well was that you need to have something to say in your art. And you don't have something to say by sitting down and thinking before every single video you make or movie you make or book you write of what do I want to say with this? You have something to say by having such clear cut values and morals and opinions that they are reflected subconsciously into your art, right? And James Cameron is an example. Mike talked about how a Terminator talked about like family values and things like that, that just kind of came out through the subconscious while writing. And you even look at Avatar, right? Where it's like with Avatar, it's of course it's about giant blue aliens on a faraway planet on the surface but if you dig like a literally an inch below the surface there's clear messaging around like climate change deforestation indigenous rights ocean conservation and obviously that's not an accident maybe there is some of that being put in there intentionally by james cameron but he doesn't have to really think about putting that in there because if you look at who he is he is just a he's just someone who cares deeply about the sustainability of the planet and so the fact that is reflected in his art is no coincidence um, but it's not necessarily something he has to think about over the top. Or another thing he's talked a lot about is like um, human arrogance leading to downfall, which is like Titanic. And even with Av- or not Avatar with Terminator, where the human beings just let AI run rampant and that led to the Terminator. And it was the human arrogance of the power of this technology that they've created that they'll always be able to be a master of is what led to the downfall of civilization, which led to the Terminator. Similar thing with Titanic. It was the human arrogance that the ship is unsinkable that partially is part of the big part of the reason why they hit the iceberg and so all these themes are like things that james cameron feels deeply that just manifest themselves in his work subconsciously and so you should i don't know how to like trying to see you should tap into the subconscious i don't necessarily know 
if that's the actual takeaway or what it means, but it's something that I noted down as an interesting point. Something I've think about a lot is like, how does the subconscious influence you? And then I guess, how can you kind of co- like write your internal code to, in, to intentionally have these things manifest themselves subconsciously? Another, another sequel jumping. I'm just going to jump all over the place. I hope you're prepared for that. But another thing when it came to sequels is when should you make a sequel? And I even think I extrapolated this to like, when should you tell a story? And the takeaway from Mike was that, and this honestly even kind of comes back a little bit to the previous point, but it's like you 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 make a sequel when you actually have something to say. You don't make a sequel because you want to make a sequel. That is the worst reason to make a sequel. I want to make a sequel because, well, this movie's making a lot of money. I want to make a sequel because this video performed really well. You should make a sequel because it makes sense to make a sequel. And that's part of the reason why a lot of the stuff today probably isn't resonating as deeply as it once did because people aren't making things for the story they're making things for the spectacle for the idea of another Jurassic Park another Star Wars another Marvel movie another DC movie it's like all of this stuff is just because the brand the brand name is so strong and I haven't watched Blade Runner 2049 yet but I've looked at the reviews briefly and a lot of people I mean I guess it's gonna be any movie where it hypes it up so I'm actually gonna recant that point is that the right use of the word recant we're gonna roll with it like it is but yeah, you need to make you need to make sure you actually have something to say with your work. I guess that really kind of does tie in a little bit to the previous point. Is just make a sequel when you have something to say, have something to say, and a story to say it within. Don't just make all. That's actually a good distinction. It's like don't just make something because you have something to say. Make sure you have a vehicle to say it within. Because just telling a story with what you want to say at the forefront is often the worst way to get your message across. The best way is to bury it deep in the story as the subtext. So the text is what's on the surface. The subtext is what's underneath it all. That will resonate with the subconscious. So again, that relating it back to the previous point. Another thing too that Mike talked about that came up that I wasn't actually honestly prepared for this coming into the interview because like Mike hasn't released a ton of content in the last couple of years. And so I don't really, I wasn't really sure entirely what his outlook on the world was, what his worldview is. I guess those are the same things, but like I wasn't entirely sure. Like there was some stuff in here that I wasn't necessarily prepared for in the preparation for the podcast. I didn't realize he'd gotten into Bitcoin. I didn't realize again, his kind of his outlook on the industry right now, which is really interesting, right? So he talked about the fact there's, there's an opportunity for lean productions in Hollywood and filmmaking right now, where there's so much bureaucracy. There's so many people behind the scenes that are involved in making a film that might not necessarily be necessary that you have the opportunity for a very lean production, which will allow you to make different types of films, right? Because part of the the whole thing here is with what Mike's saying about the fact that there's more bureaucracy behind the scenes, more people being paid to make a movie that don't really need to be there, that just add weight to the budget means that your, your budget's going to be inflated. So therefore you have to make a movie that's big enough to make the budget back because you need to do something like do another Marvel movie because a lot of people are going to go see that. So a lot of, they're going to make a lot of money to cover the um, a huge cost of making the production. And what Mike is saying is you could create a lot more interesting stories now if you lean out the production, like the behind the scenes, which to, to bring the budget down a lot so you can tell these smaller, interesting stories. And I was actually watching a recent, I watched it recently, I think it was happened in November, December, where it was Ben Affleck with the New York Times talking about his new studio, which I believe is creative collective creative first i can't remember something like that but he's talking basically a very similar thing where it's like there's a lot of unnecessary costs with making a film and if you lean that out you get the power back to the creator you can make a lot of really interesting stories and aim to tell good stories and he has a really good quote actually let me see if i can find it i just love this quote um and i think it's relevant here 
But so he's talking about a very similar thing to Mike, where it's like, if you, you can tell good stories and do it for more cost effective, get power to the creator, get power back to the creator, the writer, director, reduce the costs. And he has this really quote, let me find it. Let me find it. I have it right here. I lost it. Here it is. Almost. Okay. No, where is it? There we go. Sorry. So this is the Ben Affleck's quote from that, uh, from that talk. Cause I'm the belief that if you continue to endeavor, oh, cause he's talking about the fact that to him commercial is quality, right? You can still make a lot of money and tell a good story. And if some, if a lot of people watch something, that's a good indicator that it's good. People don't go to the cinema to watch something bad. And right now they're going to it. And that's not necessarily to say like something like a Fast and Furious is a better movie than, I don't know. I don't have an example. I'm always the worst at pulling examples out of thin air like that. But what's a movie I watched recently? Okay, let's, that's not necessarily saying that a movie like Fast and Furious is better than Whiplash. Fast and Furious is good at giving you spectacles, not good at giving you story. And so... I think that there's, uh, but Ben's point basically is that commercial is quality. That if you tell a good story, you can still make a lot of money doing it. It doesn't just have to be this pure spectacle thing. So here's here's kind of the, the greater quote. It's out of the belief that if you continue to endeavor at your highest priority, no matter what, is to do something good. That more or less is commercial. It doesn't mean I'm obtuse to ideas like there's a bigger audience for. I'm sorry, I've been fidgeting with that. That's screwed this entire time. Um, I would believe if you continue to your highest priority, no matter what, is to do something good, that more or less is commercial. It doesn't mean I'm obtuse to ideas like there's a bigger audience for action movies than there is for small dramas. 120 for Armageddon and 18 million for Goodwill Hunting. I, I sort of get that. Certain genres play more broadly. You can't not be mindful of that. But any of those genres can be better. That would be my argument. Let's do a good one. Let's make it smart. Let's have it be interesting. Let's surprise the audience. Let's make them care about it. I know you can get people to watch people shooting each other in the face and things blowing up because they're stoned. It's two in the morning and they're flipping through Netflix. But let's aim a little higher than that. Let's try to find something that people remember 20 years later. And so that's the Ben Affleck quote. And his studio, the first movie that they made was Air, which I haven't seen but I haven't heard anybody tell me it was a bad movie. Everyone I have heard talked to that has seen it has said it's really good. And that one is more creator focused, giving the power to the creator, leaner budget to tell an interesting story. And I've heard it's really good. And so again, I, I, I don't like giving my opinion. I'm not gonna give my opinion on the film. This is anecdotal from other people that, within my circle, within my life. Um, but people like that. And so the power is slowly returning to the individual, to the creator. And we talked about this briefly on the podcast the last time that was there was in the 90s when the indie director was on the rise, Quentin Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez, Richard Linklater, all those guys. And the power is returning to the individual creator in Hollywood, but also we have to understand the fact that the power is with the individual creator right now. Right, like you, the internet presents an opportunity to you as an artist to just go and make whatever you want to make and get it out there to the world. You can showcase your talents as a filmmaker on YouTube. You can do anything. The power is there. You have the ability to build an audience on your own. You don't need the studios anymore. And kind of the greater point that Mike was making here, we were talking in the podcast, was talking about with AI is going to benefit the creator even further. It's, he's re it's rendering entire departments within Hollywood useless if you can have one person do all the spectacle on their computer using, I think, what did he, call, what did he say it was? Um, Unreal Engine and some AI tool. You can kind of create very real looking spectacle as an individual creator and you no longer require Hollywood. So the power is returning from a, the, the, oh my goodness, the power is coming back to the creator from a tools perspective. The power is coming to the creator from a creator perspective. You can go make whatever it is you want to make. 
and distribute it on your own. You don't need Hollywood. And it's much easier to distribute it on your own than it was back in 1990, right? Like for Tarantino to make Reservoir Dogs was a whole deal. He had to get financing, find producers, do all this stuff. You could just do that on your own now. And the camera you have in your pocket, maybe not in your pocket, but you can, get, you can for relatively affordable, relatively, a few thousand dollars, can get your own camera that is that can shoot at a similar quality that Quentin Tarantino shot in Reservoir, Dog, Reservoir Dogs. And now I understand that the quality of cameras has improved overall. So the quality of camera you're going to see when you go to the cinema is going to be different now from what you saw when, when Reservoir Dogs was made. But the point is, is that it's out there. The power is returning to the creator within Hollywood, but even outside of Hollywood, right? Like in this YouTube world, you can make whatever you want to make. If you want to make movies, make movies and put them on YouTube. And I understand there's like a lot of logistics with that. And there's a lot of, it's not that simple, but the opportunity is there for you as an individual. And let's talk about AI. <laughs> because AI is obviously the hot button issue right now at the time of this recording, June 1st, 2023. And there's like a debate, right? Of like, does is should AI be part of the creative process? And how do you use AI? Are you still an artist if you use AI? And I kind of, I'm trying to figure out exactly how to formulate my opinion on this. And I think I'm like, I don't want to say the wrong thing here. So I want to say this carefully. And I'm even worried that I'm still going to come across the wrong way. But to me, AI is a tool that can enhance your creative process. However, if you are using it as the entire creative process, then that's where I think I, I feel a little uncomfortable with it. Where it's like, if you as the artist are basically like it's like who's doing like who's doing the heavy lifting here right where is it like like if you're like the way i look at it is like if you can enhance your process right it's like for me it's like if i if if you have the ability to outsource it and you could outsource or like if you had the ability to outsource this outsource something would you outsource it right like as a movie director you're not going to do each individual part of the process so you're going to hire people on you're going to build a team ai is like a team in your pocket is kind of how i look at it where it's like, for me, for example, when I'm making a YouTube video, I would probably hire a thumbnail designer if I could afford it. And actually, I've been told that it's actually more affordable than I think it is, but either way, I haven't, because I haven't been, we'll just say I can't afford it. So I will then use AI to help me make better thumbnails, right? It's not something that I would just outsource if I could, and but I can't, so I'm going to use AI. And if you want to use AI to help you make visuals for your film do that because you're probably gonna have to hire someone to do that anyways and so i think the thought for me is like if you use ai as the creative process though like not enhancing but using it as the entire creative process like, hey write me it's like from like using the youtube examples like yo write me 10 youtube video ideas okay sweet now write me a script for each of those youtube video ideas it's like then the soul is gone and so if you use ai as your creative process, not to enhance it as the entire process, that to me is where I just get sad because the soul is gone. You're not even making art anymore. You're just following instructions. And so that to me kind of is where I see it. And there's a quote to bring back to James Cameron. And this is a quote from that book I read, James Cameron Interviews, about AI. And not about AI, sorry. this is actually about CG. So this is back in 2000s, but I think it's really relevant to right now as it applies to AI. And seeing AI as a tool, right? All artists use the tools at their disposal. You can still make films on film, right? But people choose to make them on digital because the technology is there. So it feels weird to not use the technology to your advantage, but not letting it. But again, the whole thing is like, 
let it enhance your process. Don't let it be your process because you still want soul in there. But this quote, again, about from James Cameron, I believe like late 90s, early 2000s, talking about CG. It's meaningless now, the idea of what's real. I think the lines will just continue to blur between CG and photography until it becomes meaningless. Whether you capture something with a lens or use imaginary photons in CG, the rules of lighting are the same. If you want sunlight, you create sunlight. You either do it with a xenon light or 2K HMI, or you do it with a sun source and global illumination in a CG scene file. It's the same thing. You have to imagine the sunlight. It's, in neither case... In neither case, usually, is it actually sunlight because all cinematography is a form of artifice anyway. Masquerading as reality and the CG does the same thing. I just think it's going to become more seamless as we go along and less relevant to dissect it or deconstruct it into what its component parts are. And that to me just feels entirely relevant. I didn't read that necessarily smoothly, but like you get the sentiment there, right? Where it's like, what we're making isn't real. <laughs> and so it doesn't matter if it was generated by AI or not. Again, as long as it's not AI telling the story, I think a lot of like, again, the soul needs to remain with you. That's the biggest thing. Don't use it as, don't let AI write your stories, right? And I think that's probably the biggest sticking point I have is like, how do you use AI as a writer, right? I almost look at it like from a visual perspective, like use AI, but from the writing thing, it's like, how do you use it to break past? I don't know. I go back and forth, right? It's like when it comes to writing, if you have writer's block, like what do you do? You talk it out with your friends, but now you can talk it out with a computer, and either way, when it comes to AI, just hold on to the soul of what you're making. Don't give that to the computer. And let's talk about the creative process again, because Mike, just in a, like a one-off sentence, dropped his definition for the creative process. And I wish we could have unpacked it more. He kind of like dropped it in a greater answer, so we didn't get a chance to circle back to it. So this is something I should note down to ask him further about in our next interview. But he said that the creative process is putting juxtapositioning ideas against each other to create something new. I think that's so interesting. And it's to create something new, right? I think a lot of some of my gripes with the creative world right now is like everyone's, no one's really making anything that feels wholly new. And I think that that's, again, that's tough. And let me find, actually, I have another, I should be more prepared for these. I really just kind of wrote these bullet points down. I put the James Cameron quote in there, actually. Um, but... Steven Spielberg, I was listening to him, he did a talk for Time Magazine's 100th anniversary. And he said that what he looks for, I don't even have the quote, I just have a bullet point. But what he says he looks for in a film isn't for someone to be the next him or the next Martin Scorsese. Right? The, the interviewer asked him, like, who do you see that's going to be the next, the next Spielberg, the next Scorsese? And he's like, I don't even look for that. I look for people who are going, who are doing something, who are bucking the trend, who are writing their own filmmaking language. Those are the fun movies to watch. If you want to watch someone who looks like Martin Scorsese, go watch fucking Martin Scorsese. <laughs> Why do you need to have someone else to be like him? Go watch his movies. They exist already. It's like John Bellion talked about this where with his album, so he put out The Human Condition. John Bellion, for those of you who don't know, is a phenomenal singer. He's very influential, more so, I would honestly argue, more influential behind the scenes and kind of within the industry than with the greater culture. But he's impacted a lot of the music that you've heard. He just produced the Jonas Brothers albums, but his, his music is phenomenal. I actually wrote a screenplay inspired by one of his songs, but that's not the point. The point is he was talking about, so he put out The Human Condition, which is a very, especially time, a very unique sound, is very good. And then he put out an album, I think it was three, four years later, called Glory Sound Prep. And the sound was a little different. The vibe was different. Again, there were some John Bellion tenants there that were good, but there's some different stuff there. And some fans were pissed 
they're like we want more all-time low which is like one of his like big songs like i'm at an all-time low 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 that song um they're like he's like if you want all to listen to another all-time low just go listen to all-time low i'm not going to keep giving you the same thing that's not fun for me i think that's the same thing as an artist is like you want to push the boundary you want to put juxtapositioning ideas against each other to create something new and that's the fun part of Bill being a creator is trying to figure what that out what that is following the trends or following what ai gives you is uninspiring go and make something new that's what everyone likes to watch i don't even know how i got here but that was a good point <laughs> that's a good point i love i love that i can just i don't know sometimes it's like where these quotes come from and how i remember this stuff on the fly uh, but that Spielberg one was good. Uh, John Bellion, again, I can't recommend you listen to his music enough. He's so good. I'm a big John Bellion fan. But now, kind of circling back, circling back, it's like, what is it with John Bellion? Where it's like, he's more influential within the industry and he does have a fan base, but it's not necessarily massive and he hasn't necessarily impacted the culture directly like a lot of you would think. It's probably like through second order impact where it's like he impacts someone within the industry that will then impact the culture. But this comes back to something where Mike and I were talking about how we're now with AI and the power being with the individual creator, if everyone can make something in theory, everyone will make something. What's going to allow the best stories to rise to the top. And Mike was just saying how like the best stuff will just break through. And I go back and forth on that. I understand what Mike's saying. And I, and I like to believe that the best stuff will filter to the surface, but I don't necessarily think it does. But then again, I got this is one, maybe I'll just throw it to you. Like, what do you think? Does more noise mean more great stuff will punch through because i think about casey neistat on rich roll from back in november he was like i'm seeing a lot more stuff but i'm not seeing any more good stuff like the volume of good stuff in the 90s is about par to the volume of good stuff now and the amount of stuff being made now is like exponentially more and so does that mean that there's just less good stuff or is the good stuff not filtering through because there's noise and the bad stuff is being consumed i don't know like i go back and forth and will the best stuff truly rise to the top or if we flip it bring it back to that ben affleck interview i talked about he goes for a rant about and i just posted this as a twitter thread actually and he goes as like a, a random like one of my top performing tweets ever and this is again this is I, this happens with every content creator i talk to but it's like the thing you think isn't going to work does and thing you think is going to work doesn't but i posted this clip of like ben affleck talking about how celebrities getting older and He's basically saying like, because there's so much content now and everything and the internet is so fragmented and there's so many streaming services and so many shows and so many movies, like no one is a celebrity anymore. Like there is no celebrity. There's a few people that punch through. He said, Taylor Swift, Harry Styles, everyone knows them. But like, really the celebrities now are older than they've ever been. It's like a Ben Affleck, a Jennifer Aniston, a Jennifer Lopez, like the segment of people who kind of became massive right before the internet are still massive now because they are the widely known names. Not everyone will know a Zendaya. Not everyone knows Jacob Alordi. Alordi? Alordi? I don't know. I'm just apparently thinking of Euphoria. Not everyone knows Pedro Pascal. Not everyone knows Barry Keegan. Like, there's so many little pockets of celebrity now that I wonder, like, will the best rise to the top? Because I don't think we're seeing that with acting right now. And maybe I'm wrong. But I don't know if the best will or if what will happen instead is we'll, we'll end up with these like micro pockets of fame. Which might be a better thing for everyone. Really, it's probably better for 
the celebrities who can probably still have a little bit of a normal life. If you have like, if you're famous to a segment of people and not the world, you can probably have a little bit of a regular life. And if you were, it allows you to find community more because you're going to find the celebrities within your own pockets and not necessarily just widely applicable celebrity. And the celebrities you find will probably be chosen by the, by the people versus celebrity in the past was just partially chosen by the people and how content and art performed to the masses. But also there's a lot of like manufacturing celebrity behind the scenes. And it was like the the gatekeepers were deciding who got the shot at even being a celebrity. And now because the power is back with the individual, anyone can be a celebrity. But I don't know if we'll ever get back to a place where it's like we have across the board incredibly famous to everyone celebrities. It might just end up being these micro pockets of fame from now on. And that might, again, I don't think it's a bad thing. And who knows? We'll see. Maybe I'm wrong. But what do you think? Do you think the best will always rise to the top or will there be so much noise now that there will no be there will never be no like best? Or like we won't see as much best. I don't know. I just I go back and forth on the idea of will the best stuff truly rise to the top? Now we got into my last couple points here. I was not expecting this to be as long as it is, but here we are. And it was time intuition. And intuition is something I've been thinking a lot about lately. Wow, specifically as it applies to AI. And because a lot of people are talking about like, if everyone can make the same stuff with AI, like talent is no longer required. Talent is still required, but a different kind of talent. You need to have, and a lot of people, the the word I see thrown and bantered around a lot as it applies to AI and what's going to separate people is taste. Can you figure out what's good? And yeah, that's a big part of it. But to me, when I hear taste, I figure out, do you know what's good right now? Right? Like, do you know people will like this thing? That's what taste is. But to me, what you also need is intuition. You need intuition is being able to give people what they don't even know they want yet, to be able to give people something despite what the data says, despite what people are saying they want. Can you give them something they don't even know they want yet? And I asked Mike if you could train that. Can you train intuition or is it something you're born with? And I think there's a level of, it's, and I want to say it's both. And I think part of it is kind of the next point is if you study the past, you'll have a better understanding of intuition because you'll have a better understanding of what's played broadly across culture forever, or for at least for the last, for a long time. What are the core tenets across everything that's done well? What are those universal human emotions, those feelings that you can tap into that will still play? And I think there is a level of being born with it. There's a level of being really good. Mike talked about being a craftsman. You know, if you're a craftsman, it means you put in your time to hone your craft. Therefore, you're going to have a deeper understanding of the craft and probably have a better ability to have stronger intuition. It's like almost a trained thing. So you're not like you, maybe you're born with it a little bit, but it also comes from putting in the reps and understanding what works and what doesn't and what hasn't worked in the past, right? Like this quote from Mike wrote down is fires. If you want to look further into the future, you have to look further into the past. That's a bar. <laughs> like that is just, that's really good. And I just think so intuition can be trained, I think, but I think it comes with a lot of deep study of your craft as a craftsman of the past of everything. And so there's a level that you're born with for sure. There's a little bit of the it factor that can manifest itself in different creatives, but a lot of it can be, can be trained. The last thing, the last point here is structure. I want to talk about structure. So we talked about structure a little bit and... And here's where I like with these takeaways to where I almost feel like I'm just like, I just don't want this to be like a rehash of the podcast, but it's like my perspective on the podcast, which you're not getting in the interview. You are a little bit, but with structure, 
and Mike talked about this, and I thought this was interesting, where it's like his example of the face, right? Where it's like, if everything follows this monomyth structure, isn't everything going to be the same? And what he says is, no, it's not. It's going to be different. Like everything can be different, right? Like your skull is a is a structure for a face, but everyone's face isn't the same because they all have a skull as the structure. Like they're, everyone's face is different. And that's the same way with storytelling, where it's how what you layer on top of the structure is what makes it unique. And the best the best stories hide that structure. You don't even realize that that structure is happening. I don't know if you can hear the, the fire alarm in the back or the fire truck in the background, but we live at a very busy intersection where the fire trucks is on their main route. So I apologize for that. But again, the nature of one takes, right? But the thread I was just on, which I was very excited about, was the fact that the best stories hide the structure. You don't even know it's there when you're watching it. And that is the key of someone who's very creative. Again, we talked about at the top of this podcast, constraints, being able to play within constraints is showcasing your creativity and playing within the constraint of structure, of story structure is still very creative and how you use it and how you hide it is part of the talent. And you can break that structure like we talked about, but you have to understand the rules first. You have to do the study. You have to build up the intuition to know when you can break the structure and how to break the structure. I'm going to leave that with you. This was a lot of fun. I haven't, again, it's been a year since I've done one of these takeaways. And I like, like, I used to do these again. There's like an economical thing where I could just do like 15, 20 minutes and get in, get in, get an episode up. And now it's just fun. Like I just get to sit here and like rant to you for like an hour, 40 minutes where I at 41 minutes right now. And so this is fun. I had a good time. I hope you did too. If you enjoyed it, if you enjoyed my interview with Mike, share it with a friend, maybe subscribe. If you have any thoughts about either of the interviews with Mike or this takeaways episode, please send me a message on Instagram and the Jacob Kelly everywhere. Um, I look forward to hearing from you. I appreciate you for taking time to check this out and I will talk to you soon.